Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 17th, 2020. My name is Leah M. I'm your moderator for this morning. The share ID numbers for Friday, May 15th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,631. That's 14631. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,632. That's 14632. This morning, A Vision for You presents Sober Suffering, Getting to Emotional Sobriety. For members of 12-step fellowships, such as Overeaters Anonymous, the 12 steps serve a specific purpose. According to AA co-founder Bill Wilson, their author, the 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink, compulsively overeat for people like us, and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. In other words, the 12 steps can keep us, as recovered compulsive overeaters, food sober and happy. The 12 steps are designed to bring about a spiritual awakening, a change in the way we think, a change in the way we feel, a change in the way we behave. Our spiritual awakening instills in us a new perspective. Our selfish, self-centered pursuits have been subdued and redirected. However, recovery means adopting a way of life that requires continuous commitment and continuous effort. We can and must continue to let go of fear, continue to let go of resentment and selfishness, Put aside selfish demands. Practice being loving and become more connected to God and our family, friends, and fellows. We now look for continued emotional sobriety, emotional balance, and increased joy in living and fulfillment from things with real and lasting value. Awaken to the presence of God our lives become filled with new purpose and meaning. Joining us today to share her experience, strength, and hope is Cheryl A., a recovered compulsive overeater from Massachusetts. Cheryl is devoted to living in God's design, the 12-step way of life, and to carrying this message of recovery. And it's with great appreciation and tremendous pleasure to welcome Cheryl A. to the line. Good morning, Cheryl. Good morning, Leah, and good morning, everyone. My name is Cheryl A., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Brookline, Massachusetts. I am so excited to have the opportunity to speak to everyone today. It's such a gift, and it's such a responsibility that I really don't take lightly, and I'm just looking forward to it. Um, So what I want to do today is I want to share a little bit with everyone about my story. Um, 
I'm going to tell you a story about my story as I go along. And I'm going to tell you about what happened, what it was like. And I'm going to tell you about my circuitous path through recovery, which I had. I had a bit of a circuitous path and different phases of recovery. And, and I'm going to share with you a lot of things I learned along the way about why there was a point in time in my recovery where I was physically sober, physically abstinent, physically recovered, and yet I still felt tremendously unrecovered on so many levels because I didn't have, at certain points in my recovery, the distinctions around different layers of recovery. I'm going to talk today about something that, for anyone who was at the convention, um, Herb Kay had put up a model, and there's some integration that I've been able to have thinking about that over the months and weeks and in preparation for today, where he talked about three different layers of recovery. Physical, which is very much about our body, how we use food and don't. Emotional, which very much is about a healing in the mind. And and spiritual, spiritual sobriety. Three levels of sobriety, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And the level of spiritual sobriety affects our will affects what I do, affects how I behave and how I act. So for a lot of years in recovery, I didn't really understand that there were multiple layers and I suffered in sobriety, what I thought was sobriety, for a really long time. So I'm going to talk about that. And I'm going to, afterwards, I will um, hope to learn with everyone and go to the book and look for some areas that refers to emotional and spiritual sobriety um, as sort of distinct entities from, from our physical sobriety. Um, so who, so my story. So I uh, grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I'm an identical twin and I um, started having issues that were notable even as early as kindergarten and second, first and second grade, what was happening to me? My twin sister and I used to pull and rip down at our shirts. Why? Because there were lines in the shirts that showed, showed rolls in our bodies. And I hated it. I didn't want to have that feeling of, of not being smooth in my, in my tummy. I grew up in a family that had a huge focus on food, my dad was always on diets. He was gaining weight. He was losing weight. He was on all kinds of diets. There was always a conversation about food um, that was ongoing in my family, whether my dad was overweight, my mom trying to tell everyone to eat in moderation. For a while as a child, I, I didn't really know how to internalize any of that. All I knew is that I, even from an early beginning, didn't have complete comfort in my body. And as an identical twin, you're very much compared um, to your sister, in my case, my identical twin sister, Sue. And so I did grow up with the self-consciousness of being um, always in relation to other, always in relation to how was I going to be measuring up. When I got into third grade, it's the first time that I really began to have my self-esteem be hit hard. Why? There was a little boy who began to bully me and tell me that I was fat. 
and he was on the school bus and he used to laugh at me and I would be sitting right next to my identical twin and he wouldn't be saying anything about her. He would only be saying something about me. And I didn't understand why. I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I was a little bit bigger than my twin. I was never actually a big kid growing up. It wasn't part of my story. Um, but I, I was bigger than Sue and he would notice it. And it, he continued to, to make comments about me and bully me for the next three years from third to sixth grade. He'd stop me in hallways and he would laugh in front of classrooms and he would point out to me. And what did I do with that? I didn't tell my parents. I didn't talk about it with my sister. I did not talk about it with anyone at my school, my teachers, no one. What I did is I believed him. And that became the time where I began to internalize that something was wrong with me. Something wasn't right. I felt like I was somehow a, the defective twin. And so by, I would say, sixth grade, I was pretty regularly using food, which became my drug of choice, to medicate and soothe and calm myself. Luckily for me at the time, my sister was doing the same thing. So it wasn't just me, because that's kind of what we did in my family. So together, we kind of used food, and even though she was a little smaller than me, and it just became the way that I tried to calm, the way that I tried to feel better. So my, so this is just to give you a sense of time frame. I've been in program for 32 years. Um, and from 1979, that third grade year, until about 1988 when I became a senior in high school, my disease just kind of progressed. And by seventh grade, I was dieting. I was doing magazine diets and all these different kinds of diets that were out there. And by ninth grade, I was doing real diets, like I was doing Weight Watchers. And my identical twin and I did Weight Watchers, and we each lost 25 pounds from actually a pretty normal weight and got excruciatingly thin. And for much of high school, I stayed that thin until I couldn't do what Sue did anymore, which was continue to restrict. I just kind of kept eating. And so there were periods of time where I would be eating, and then I would be restricting, and then I'd be eating, and then I'd be restricting, and then... I just couldn't, I couldn't keep that up. And so then my, my binging in secret began because I felt so much shame that that was just me doing that and not my sister. So then I began doing all kinds of diets, Weight Watchers, Physicians Weight Loss, Diet Center, paying my parents lots and lots of money for me to try to lose this weight that I probably really didn't even need to lose um, so that I could feel okay again. And by the end of my high school period, um, by, the, by junior and senior year, I really was starting to get more than my normal weight. And I felt humiliated. And I felt um, like I just didn't fit in. So I went through high school with constant self-consciousness, with constant overwhelm, with how I was going to be able to um, handle food. I started going out and buying food. I would go to places and say that I was um, purchasing something for one person, but I'm, uh, I'm sorry, for two people, but really it was just for me. It was just with, for one person. And, and I didn't tell anyone. I remember when my, we went into the back, I went into the back freezer where my mom used to keep everything she would make for holidays. And one day I saw a padlock on it. 
why was there a padlock on the freezer? Because she knew that food was disappearing. And so she knew that I was going in there. And it was probably one of the most humiliating moments of my childhood, knowing that my mom had to padlock that freezer so that I wasn't going to get into it. I um, found a way when I was a senior in high school. How did I find a way? I was on the newspaper of my school, and I was given the task of writing a book review for a book that was written by a woman named Caroline Adams Miller. She uses her name publicly, so I am going to use her name publicly here. And Caroline came to our school to give an assembly, and she was talking about this book that she had just written. My name is Caroline, and she was basically sharing her story of her pain with her eating disorder, what happened to her growing up, what happened to her in college. And she didn't go into details. Looks like my, my alarms are still going off. She did not go into detail about how she recovered. She was, um, because she had written this book and she was in a public forum, she didn't talk about OA at the time. But I got to hear about OA because I had to do my interview with her and for my book review, which was going to go in the paper. And then within minutes of speaking to Caroline, I was in tears about the pain that I had had with my food addiction. And it was on that call that I learned about Overeaters Anonymous. And she got me to my first meeting, which was in 1988 in Baltimore, Maryland. The impact of what one person can do to change a life in this program always hits me hard when I think about Caroline. Because I have been in program now all these years for more than half my life. I'm, I just turned 50 a few weeks back. And if I didn't have these 12 steps to tell me how to live, I don't know who I'd be. I don't know where I'd be. I don't know what I'd look like. I don't know if I'd be alive. I don't know how I would function. And it was because of this person who shared herself and was willing to share herself with me and be of service that I had one of the most important gifts that was ever given to me in my life, which is the gift of knowledge of the 12 steps. So when I graduated from high school, my twin sister and I separated for the first time. We went to separate colleges. And within three months, I gained 50 pounds. And I was out of control. Yes, I'd been in program now for a year, almost a year, because I'd found it when I was a senior in high school. But I wasn't working the steps. I didn't know how to work the steps back then. I really had no idea. I was in this program and I was going to meetings. And I just, I, I, for whether my youth, my willingness, my disease had not yet progressed to the point that I knew that this was the last possible thing that I could get to. There was no other thing left to try to get me to stop my eating. So... Here I am, I'm in college, I'm in Chicago, and I know about program, so I'm going to meetings, but I am out of control. I was a very good student in high school and was unable to keep up with any of my studies, with any of my, um, with my grades, the, the humiliation and degradation and um, experience of not being able to access myself when I was there because I couldn't, I didn't know how to live. Everything blew up and out of control. I did know how to go down to my roommates' rooms and, and, and sift through their food. I did know how to um, 
pick up the food that was in trash bins that I had thrown away because I didn't want to eat it. But then I went back to go pick it out of the trash bin and eat it anyway. I did know how to go into the lines at, at the cafeteria and take all of my food, put it on my tray, sit down with my friends, say that I had to then get up, go to the bathroom, go back in the food line, grab all the things I was too embarrassed to pick up when I was with everybody else, go into a bathroom stall, eat all those things, then go back and down to the cafeteria, sit down with all my friends, and then eat what I had put on my plate. I knew how to do that. I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to stop. One, one of the second gifts that came to me in program was I went to a meeting um, in the greater Chicago area. And at that meeting, I heard a man speak who gave me hope, who made me feel at home, and who became someone who I learned a tremendous amount from. And that was Harlan back 31 years ago. Harlan at the time um, looked different than he does today. Um, and I heard him speak and I heard his recovery at the time. And I heard this person who... Um, taught me about a bottom and who made me feel um, comfortable within my own skin because I kept hearing of his example and others' examples of people who just didn't feel comfortable in their own. And that made me feel like, oh, God, I'm home. I'm home. So it took me... Um, so now we're in the phase of 1988 to 1992 when I'm in college, and I had hit such a low bottom in that first few months of my school that I left school um, that first freshman year, and I went into a treatment center based on 12-step step for six weeks. Um, a third gift to me, to be able to go and focus that intensely on the 12 steps. I came out and I relapsed immediately, and it wasn't until the summer of 1989 or something came to me, and it has to do with acceptance. I had had a terrible binge. I was out of control. I had been in treatment. I had been out. I had missed a semester, a trimester of school to go into treatment. I had heard these voices saying to me over and over again, acceptance, acceptance. I, talked, I, I learned the serenity prayer. But acceptance at the time always meant to me sort of submission to something I never wanted. It meant giving up to being fat. It meant giving up. And something happened to me. And I realized that if I didn't accept myself as a compulsive overeater, and I didn't accept my life exactly as it is, as it was, who I was, that I really wasn't ever going to have the opportunity to change. So something shifted that summer, and it was my first version of abstinence that I got. But abstinence back at that time was sort of my version of it. I still, still, still didn't know how to work these steps according to how they're laid out in the big book. And I didn't know anything about the physical allergy still to the depth that I do today. I didn't have all the distinctions that have gotten untangled over the years so that I know clearly what I can eat, what I can eat, what will trigger my disease and what won't. So I kind of did it my way for a good long while. And um, so 1992, 
I'm just going to say some highlights um, from 1992 literally up until 2004, just a few highlights of things that I experienced. So the doing it my way was pretty hardcore between 1992 and 1997. I had graduated college. I had made up what I had missed. I went to go live in Washington, D.C. I always went to meetings. I always, always, always went to meetings. I never stopped. Sometimes I had sponsors. Sometimes I didn't. How else did I do it my way? Um, I would uh, take on, I would be, work with sponsors and I do the first three steps and this very hardcore character de defect of perfectionism would come in and I'd say, you know, I just didn't complete them. I think I didn't do it thoroughly enough. I didn't do it exactly the right way that I needed to do it. So I would do it again. Or I'd find another sponsor to take me through steps one, two, and three again. I know today that if I'm doing this one, two, three, dance, one, two, three, dance, one, two, three, dance, one, two, three, dance, I am not in the prescription of what will relieve my addiction. It's a 12-step process, and then it's an ongoing process of living in a way of life that maintains the new order of things and allows um, me to go deeper and deeper and deeper into recovery. But I was scared. I always was scared that if I didn't do it perfectly and I didn't do it right and I didn't do it um, with every T and every cross and every I dotted, that somehow I was going to be back at that kid, back at that kid from, from, from high school who simply just felt not good enough. Not good enough. You know, I've learned that there are different elements of healing that need to happen and that do happen in this program. And some of those have to do with the mending of my character defects. And then there are other things about childhood wounds that require a bit of a different process. I almost think if Bill were alive today, there could be a whole new chapter about childhood wounds and the application of the steps to those. Because as a child, I was unseen and I felt unlistened to. So as an adult, I have a deep need to be listened to and to be seen. And I have character defects that, that, that rise up around those wounds. And I have other core wounds about the way that I was parented, not having an emotionally available mom. Um, and um, those wounds run deep. My 12-step process and my later phases of recovery, which I will get to and talk about, and the process of getting from physical sobriety to emotional sobriety and to now spiritual sobriety has allowed me to be in the level of also healing those childhood wounds and creating distinctions, distinctions around what is a wound and what is a defect? And, and what does that mean about my amends process and what does that mean? So... Um, so from, I'm in this phase and I'm, I'm now working in Washington, D.C. And I'm still doing it my way. And I'm doing this one, two, three dance. And I'm working with different sponsors. And I'm scared to death I'm not doing it perfectly enough. And one of the things that I did realize, and I think the flip side of doing the one, two, three dance and one of the benefits of this program, when you keep showing up and you keep showing up and you keep showing up, there is a benefit to that. I wasn't working all the steps, but I kept showing up and 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 I realized 
I don't really have a God of, I, I don't under, know how I understand God. I don't have a God of my understanding. Steps one, two, and three are all about conceding to my innermost self that I have this thing. And what is this thing, by the way? I have this thing. What is this thing? And then it's about developing a relate. It's, it's acknowledging and establishing a relationship with power for the first time through a decision, a decision, a coming to believe in step two, and then a decision in step three to continue on with the program and to buy the way that I turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God is to continue on with the rest of the steps. But I also realized I really didn't know how I understood God. Now, there was a time years and years and years ago where I remember sitting in a hotel room with Harlan at a convention in Baltimore. Harlan, you'll probably remember this back in 1990, maybe? No, it was after. It was like 1992, 93, something like that. And coming up with an initial list of what is God to me. And I worked with that for a while. But I really didn't know. I lived in a kind of hazy agnosticism. I grew up um, Jewish and I did most of my Jewish practice out of respect for my parents. It wasn't something that was deeply internalized with me. So I couldn't even look to my Jewish faith as a way to understand my God. So I decided um, that I could not really and truly, whether driven by this absolute need to understand God or this absolute need to be perfect, either way, I went to Israel. I left my work and I went to Israel. And I decided that I had to go to the place that would help me learn about my, my faith, that would help me take everything that I had gotten so far from, just checking my time, um, so far from, from my, my process and begin to go deep into, well, what do I believe about God? And it was there that I actually did find my understanding of God. I came back, and as a result of being able to say how I understood God, and I began to fall in love with my faith, and I began to fall in love with my spiritual process in 12-step, and I began to understand how to move forward with this decision, and I began to work the program, but I still kept working it my way. 1998 to 2004 was a period of time where I went to graduate school. I got my MBA. And that is a place where there are lots and lots of people who do lots and lots of work. And I, at this point, so what is my abstinence throughout all of this time? Not my abstinence today. My abstinence back then was still about kind of what I wanted. I still kind of never really thought that I was like uh, as bad as maybe some other people in program, maybe I could still eat this food. Um, it really wasn't still yet the time that I was um, as clean as I am today with my food. I still kept going to meetings. I had explored my relationship with God in an incredibly powerful way. I, however, still was incredibly focused on food, I was white-knuckling food, white-knuckling with my abstinence, and I continued, you know, to, to just kind of like have my one foot in and my one foot out with food. 
it's hard to build a program without cleanliness with the first level of sobriety, which is physical. It's not possible, as I've learned, to move on to other layers of sobriety if I don't have the physical thing nicked. I have to plug the jug as my AA friends. I'm not an alcoholic, but I do go to some AA meetings. And my alcoholic friends talk about plugging the jug, but it's just the first step. You got to plug the jug, but it's not all that's required, you know, to be able to bring about um, the recovery that this 12-step process brings. So I'm still really doing it my way. I'm doing it my way. I'm doing it my way. I thinking that I have this greater sense of spirituality because I've gone to Israel and I have a much better concept. I'm beginning to integrate my faith and my spirituality and my 12 steps. And then I go off to graduate school and I'm white knuckling my food still. Now I, I have had a slightly, my, my experience, we all have our own experiences. Um, I did not, it took me about four years to lose the 50 pounds that I had gained in college. Why did it take that long? Because I did all the things that I'm sharing right now. It took a long time because I was doing it my way. It took a long time because I was white knuckling. It took a long time because, you know, and, and I was very lucky because weight did come off of me. What happened for me over the years that I really wasn't working this program was that I began to burst pipes in so many different ways. And after graduate school, where I became exposed to a kind of working that just felt like, oh my gosh, this is home. And I began to take on an overworking um, capacity that has plagued me and has burst a pipe in my recover it, 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 through the manifestation of another aspect of my addiction and has kept me swirling and swirling and swirling for so many years until I began to work the program as it's laid out. So I went to Israel, I came back, I started graduate school. And then finally in 2004, I met a woman in Boston and she told me about some meetings in Boston and um, she, I met her through my, through my Jewish path and uh, turned out we were both in, in program and it was an amazing experience to, to meet her. And I started going to meetings and that was the first time I finally got abstinent. I finally got abstinent. I started weighing and measuring my food. I started understanding the concept of um, what I was allergic to. And I began, I began in, down the road of being able to clean up. I stayed in that phase between 2004 and 2014 of squeaky clean abstinence, focusing on making sure that I spoke to three people a day, going to meetings, but I still didn't work the steps. I kind of worked them. I did the big, the, the fourth step as an autobiography and I did some other steps kind of again my way. Did I really, really still have to do it the way everybody else is doing it? I don't know. Maybe not. I went through some of those years, some really tough um, years of fertility challenges. I lost a baby, my first baby, um, when I was nine months pregnant. I went on to lose four more pregnancies until I finally had my two miracle children who are with me today, thank God. And 
had I not had the 12 steps going through those years, I don't know how I would have survived. But I sure would have survived even more um, easily had I been working the program as it's laid out in the big book. So with the tremendous, tremendous pain of not understanding why I felt so bad all the time. I had gone through some traumas. I had gone through this, fer- this, this fertility phase of my life where I was losing pregnancies and I had lost a baby and my husband and I were yearning and yearning and yearning and yearning. I was abstinent. And I was working on my physical sobriety. But I didn't have um, the eventual phases of sobriety that I know today can kind of help me cope and get through most situations in life. I began to hit a bottom with my overdoing. I began to look back towards food in the most powerful way right around 2014. And it was in 2014, I met someone else in program who started to talk to me about all the different areas in my life where I felt out of control. And she also helped me look at, was there anything in my physical, in my, within my physical abstinence that, was, that I was hanging on to within my food And I began to take another look at my food and I realized that there were certain behaviors that I had that I needed to let go of. I have found that there are ways to compulsively eat in weight and measured abstinence. There were certain behaviors that I had, for example, like um, taking yogurt and freezing it with fruit inside and eating it like a food that I used to binge on. I'd eat it weight and measured, but I'm telling you, man, the sensitivity that I had towards that behavior made me crazy. And I had to let go of it, had to let go of eating frozen things. I had to go to that level and I needed to um, begin to look at other behaviors in my life. So I began to get abstinent on a different level. And then I began finally, finally to work the steps. So I found um, a new sponsor and I started going through the steps as they are laid out in the big book. I began to work step four as it was laid out and then realized that there's step five and six and seven, eight, nine. And the process of going through those steps as thoroughly as I did as they were laid out began to help um, me realize that there was other layers of recovery to get to. So I finally got to a full physical sobriety through the process of working those steps during that time. But I still didn't feel sober. I would go, I, I still had the experience of feeling that there were areas of my life where I just simply felt out of control. Why was I so miserable? Why couldn't I be my word? 
Why wasn't I my word? I was putting my food on a scale. I was doing the steps as they were laid out and I was getting to deeper and deeper layers of my recovery. But I still felt so deeply, deeply unrecovered. I still didn't feel those promises fully. So I want to talk right now about, um, I think I referenced when I first began that there was a model that Herb Kay had brought up back at the beginning um, at the convention. And he talked about these three bubbles of recovery. And he talked about physical, physical recovery, sorry, physical sobriety as manifested in the body. And emotional sobriety as manifested in the mind. And spiritual sobriety as manifested through the will. And I realized as I began to work the steps that there were just other layers and levels of sobriety to get to. I had gotten physically sober. But this program isn't just about that. It isn't just about living in a thin body. It isn't just about that. It's about learning how to live. It's about learning how to function in my body, in this world, in a way that allows me to maximize what I'm supposed to do here. And as an addict, I just don't do that naturally. I just don't do that naturally. This disease infects the way that I think. It's like um, it's a virus. And if I let that thinking come out of the basement that's deep down, I will be thinking wrongly and not knowing. And when I think wrong, I act wrong. When I think wrong, I act wrong. So what happened to me, and I now, then I'm going to move on to talk to you and learn together about some things in the book that have deeply affected me and helped me separate and untangle out the different layers of my own history and past and the circuitous path through recovery that I've taken and to share with you that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be a circuitous path. So... Um, the physical sobriety gave me some peace, but the thinking that I continued to utilize made me insane. It made me insane. So I really wasn't practicing these principles in all of my affairs. I wasn't maintaining the new order of things, and I wasn't, I certainly wasn't sharing myself with other people. So here I am, and I am in um, 2014 to 2016, where I begin to work the steps as they're laid out. I'm beginning to separate and untangle that there are different layers of sobriety. I'm beginning to understand that I am not getting deeply underneath the rest of it and that this disease has come up from the basement, is infecting my thinking, that there's a physical aspect of this that is just the beginning. I want to go to the book and, um, and share a couple things with you. So um, in Into Action, there are some references to the fact that things happen over time 
that we get to deeper layers of recovery over time. So right on the first page on 72 and into action, and for anyone who's new on, on, on the line, into action is the chapter that starts to lay out steps five through through nine, and step, sorry, steps five through through 11, and then we move on to step 12 in the next chapter. In the very beginning of Into Action, it says on page 72, we have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. That's after our fourth step from the previous chapter. We've put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. So right there, we have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. That taught me and reminds me that it's only a beginning. That fourth step that clears away um, all that where we take inventory of, of, of the stock that we have inside ourselves and we look at our resentments and we look at our fears and we look at our sex inventory. We've ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. Okay, well, that's a rough way. So there's more to come. There's more to come. Then, if we go to... If we go to, um, bear with me for just a second. So if we go to then page 75, it says it towards the beginning at the top, we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken the step withholding nothing, we are delighted. Sometimes as we go through um, that fifth step process where it talks about pocketing our pride, we pocket our pride, we go talk to someone else. I illuminate every dark cranny of the past, but for me, every dark cranny of the past, I might miss something. I might miss something. So that every dark cranny of the past is a process that has to happen over time too because I'm going to get that rough idea right at the beginning. But it does put emphasis on the fact that every dark cranny needs to be illuminated. And so steps 10, 11, and 12, particularly 10 where we do continued inventory, are so helpful to be able to continue that process to continue that process, that there, this implies to me there's sort of a revelatory process that continues to happen. It, go, it, it continues. There's more to come, more. Whatever needs to get revealed will get revealed. Then again on, let's see, um, So on page 82, it says, if we have no such complication, there is plenty we should do at home. Now, the complication that's being referred to here is the complication of the person. We're now talking about steps, um, steps eight and nine, and the complication that was re just referenced is someone who had had an affair. And what do you do in, in the essence in, in, with respect to that? Um, that amendment had to be made. 
So it's saying if we have no such complication, there's plenty we should do at home. Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is keep sober. Right there. Right there. The only thing he needs to do is keep sober. Certainly he must keep sober, for there will be no home if he doesn't. But he is yet a long way from making good to the wife or parents from whom years he has so shockingly treated. So the words that jumped out to me were that there's a long way to go. That keeping sober, keeping abstinent, that's not it. That's not only it. There's more to come. There is a process that comes afterwards, and that sometimes there is a long way for making good with family. I have found that so deeply to be true for me. In my recovery, I have found that the pain that I have felt while being physically sober but continuing to suffer has had to do with a misunderstanding of how to live in 10, 11, and 12 to be able to continue that process of revelation that allows me to do these things that are referenced that come later on, that continue to come. There's a long way from making good to my family. Then it goes on down towards the bottom. This just is so powerful to me. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. This is at the bottom of 82. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. Alcoholics, compulsive overeaters, addicts. I am a tornado roaring my way through the life of others. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that his sobriety is enough. My gosh, how many years did I not understand that my physical abstinence and my putting down the food wasn't enough? I had to plug the jug, as my AA friends say. I had to plug the jug. I had to stop. I had to, I have to know what foods I am allergic to. I have to know what is going to trigger the physical allergy and therefore the mental obsession. I need to know that. But that level of sobriety for me, that level of abstinence for me isn't enough. On the next page at 83, it says that there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it. Okay, I won't go continue on from there. But the point that is that it says there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. Oh, I have to practice these principles in all of my affairs, all of my affairs. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Well, how do I live it? How do I live it? Steps 10, 11, and 12 are how I live it. That's our way of life. That's our way of life. I think that the suffering that I have felt in what seemed outwardly like like being a recovered person, had to do with a really, as I've said before, misunderstanding of how to live in 10, 11, and 12. Um, finally, uh, just a couple more references in this chapter that I want to relay. On page 84, when we begin talking about step 10, 
This thought brings us to step 10. This is right in the middle of the page. It suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we clean up the past. And this talks about how we begin the process of step 10 even as we are cleaning up the past in step 9. But it's a commencement, right? We commence. It's a beginning. It can, should continue for a lifetime. We continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God to remove them at once. There is this ongoing daily, I need to do this every single day. It's my medicine. It's my medicine. And it is my pathway and my ticket to be able to move into the other realms of sobriety, emotional and spiritual. I don't want to just live anymore in a thin body. I don't want anymore to just live not having to focus on holding myself back with food. I don't ever want to pick up a food that brings me to a binge and sets this insanity in motion. And I realized today there's a long process, as it said, of reconstruction ahead. That means that I have deeper layers to get to in the way that I'm healing and living. I don't ever want to pick up my first think. I don't want to pick up the think that sets in motion a series of behaviors of overdoing and overworking and underliving. What I've learned in my recovery is that I'm an underbeer, that as a food addict, I am an under beer, and God has a plan for me. But if I don't live in this continual process of going deeper and getting into healing of the way that my mind works, which is the way that my thinking works, and deeper into healing the way that my, um, my hands work, if I want to know where I am in my recovery, all I need to do is look at where are my hands and where are my feet. What are they doing my sponsor today constantly tells me that I need to take massive actions over and over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. It says on page 85 and into action that these are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line if we wish. It's the proper use of the will. This word constantly again. Constantly. Ongoing not just once. There's a process that happens. It gets, I go deeper constantly. It has to be with me constantly. Um, a vision for you, which is the chapter we've been studying during the week, is another chapter that really teaches me how to live in recovery. It teaches me about what the original Four, certainly, and what the original um, what the original founders of, of Alcoholics Anonymous did, and it's so much about how to be of service to others. It lays out a metamorphosis of um, of a recovery process, and that recovery isn't an event. It doesn't say the Big Book doesn't say that it will be easier. It doesn't say that it will always go my way, but it, it will be different. It will be different from the process that my natural 
addict self will use to cope with life, which is to pick up food that will destroy me, and it is to pick up thinking that will destroy me. This is a disease that infects the mind. It's a virus that continually will come out, and I won't even know that I am thinking through that lens. There, um, on page 154 in A Vision for You, when it talks about Bill at that incredibly strategic moment where he was looking down the hallway of the hotel that he was in and he could see the, the gay crowd laughing and drinking and he was on thin ice, what was he to do? He didn't want that old insidious sanity of the first strength. And it says with a shiver, he turned away and walked down the lobby to the church directory because he knew that what he had to do was talk to another alcoholic and that that was going to be the only thing to inoculate him from the insane urge to pick up. And then thank God he did, because if he didn't, God knows where we all would be today. But with a shiver, he turned away, right? So this is not like, um, this is not for me, when I, when I hear that, this isn't like I, I, it, it's easy. This isn't things will all fall into place. And so I will feel a certain way and be able to take the next right steps. I sometimes have to take the next right steps with a shiver. I sometimes have to take the next right step because I'm trying to align my actions and behaviors with what I'm committed to, not what I want or feel. I have to do it with a shiver. That always kind of, um, it moves me deeply thinking about where he was at that moment. And when I think about where I am at any moment where I really want to do what I want to do in my behavior, versus what I'm committed to. I need, it's a shiver, right? And then, of course, in, in, as recovery gets on, it's not a shiver anymore. It gets removed. It gets easier and easier and easier. A couple more um, references in the big book. There's a very powerful story called My Chance to Live. And it starts on page um, 309. And it's... Um, I love this story because it's the story of a teenager who uses the tools to climb out of her dark abyss of despair, is what it says at the beginning of the chapter. And I was a teenager when I came into this um, program. And I was a teenager who had no, I remember when, when, when I first, my first sponsor in this in program back in 1988, I went to a meeting at my elementary school. It happened to be at my elementary school, the, the, the location that they were using. And I walked in. And I listened, and I was absolutely terrified. I couldn't relate to anyone. They were all older than me. Um, I thought it was a cult, frank, quite frankly. And then at the end, a woman came over to me, and she said, are you a newcomer? And I said, yes. And she said, do you need a sponsor? And I said, I guess. And she handed me a big book and said, if you take this big book away and you read the first 164 pages and you think you can abide by that, come back and I'll be your sponsor. So I took that big book away, and I read the first 164 pages, and I literally didn't know what it meant. 
no clue. I'm 18 years old. I don't know what this means. But I went back and said, yeah, I think I can do it. And she began to sponsor me. Well, it didn't really last long because I didn't understand a word of it. There is a different, there's a way to read spiritual material that I've learned over the years in program. I can read the big book from an intellectual standpoint, and I can try to gain some knowledge. But I think spiritual material, the, the spiritual material in this book, begs to be read in a spiritual way. And if I am not taking the material into my heart, and if I am not taking the material deep inside of me and saying, what does this mean to me? Who am I in this? I need to identify in and internalize it. Reading the first, this is why sponsorship is around, because just reading the first 164 pages from an intellectual standpoint, my goodness. Um, so I've learned that there's a spiritual way of reading as well, which is best done through really um, important sponsorship and guidance in how to get through it versus reading it like a textbook on my own as an 18-year-old and trying to say, can I do this? Can I not do that? I didn't know. So here's this woman in this story on page 309 in My Chance to Live, and she was a teenager too. And <laughs> she says on page 315, she gets sober, right? And I did stay sober. One summer with people who enjoyed life sober was all it took for me to want sobriety more than I wanted to drink. That's a really important step in the first stages of of, of, of recovery. I want to be sober more and abstinent more than I want to pick up my food. And then as I got moved into more emotional sobriety, I want to be sober more than I want to pick up my think. And then as, I'm moving, as I've been moving into spiritual sobriety, I want to be sober more than I want to pick up that action that is going to trigger my disease in the most subtle of ways sometimes, but it will. And eventually, picking up actions through my, the use of my will, if I'm not picking up the next right one, I will go back to food. There's this process of integration that Herb talked about as we move from physical sobriety with the body into emotional sobriety in the mind into um, spiritual sobriety with the will. And then there's this process of disintegration that happens when we begin to disintegrate in the way that we use our will, which then leads us to begin to disintegrate in the way that we are thinking. And then we begin to disintegrate in the way that we are using our bodies and what we are putting into them. At the below on 315, it says, when I couldn't find an easier, softer way, I looked for the person with the magic wand, the one person in the AA who could make me all better. And I really wanted to make a comment about that because over time, I sure have done that too. At times of desperation, when I didn't either know how to do the next right step, where I wasn't working with a sponsor, I really wanted to just find one of you out there that would just be the right sponsor to fix it for me. I really did. And there was someone in program who I asked to be my sponsor once, and I'm years into recovery at this point. This is, um, but moving into the, the more emotional phases, and she said to me, can you please stop being the effing patient and start being the doctor? 
See, this get, got into my deep misunderstanding of how to work 10, 11, and 12. I kept wanting to perpetually look, and this is part of my faulty thinking, for the one right person to fix me. And she said, stop being the effing patient and start being the doctor. Follow the directions. If it says pause, pause. If it says pray, pray. How do I maintain my recovery? Take care of others. Why should a recovered person spend time with me? Why? Why? There are people who are sick out there. I'm at the phase in my recovery. You are at the phase of recovery, Cheryl, where you need to continue to work 10, 11, and 12. More will be revealed. I just talked about these, these quotes in Into Action where it talks about a long process of restoration. We work the steps fast, right? We have to go through these steps. We cannot delay. We can't do that, right? But then the long process of restoration is about more will be revealed. Do 10 continued inventory, 11, continued um, expanding of my relationship with my higher power, and 12, service. That's our way of life. And that is what sometimes takes a little while to get to the deeper levels that will relieve me from my sober suffering and move me into not just emotional recovery, but spiritual recovery as well. This person also said to me, to have a spiritual experience, I need to work with others. To use my spiritual warrior sisters as an accountability group. I am playing God when I am doing and talking about all the ways I need to run the show and who I need to sponsor me. I need to ask God what I need to be recovered. I need to ask God. There's nobody out there that I, that, that, that person I'm waiting for is me. I'm the person I'm waiting for. Show up, Cheryl. I am the person I'm waiting for. I've been in program 32 years. Live in 10, 11, and 12. You know, they're, they're, um, step nine, I think, ha has tripped me up in the past. Why? Much like I used to do the one, two, three dance, one, two, three dance, one, two, three dance earlier in my life, I kind of did a dance of six and seven aren't strong enough and nine's not strong enough. Something's wrong. Why? Why six, seven, and nine? Six, seven, and nine relate to my character defects and have they been removed and the amends that I've made. Well, I made direct amends um, to every person I needed to make direct amends to. And then I realized I have living amends to make. And this has been part of the process of moving into these other layers of recovery through emotional recovery and spiritual recovery, of having the opportunity to make living amends. So, for example, if I've misused, if I haven't managed our finances well, how I change the way that I manage my finances after making a direct amends to my husband, because that's my job, well, then how have I, am I changing my behaviors around the way I'm managing it? Am I changing, am I making a living amend to myself because I used to abuse my body and I still struggle with this to this day. I'm definitely continuing it and a work in progress with lack of sleep because I overdo and overdo and overdo. Well, am I changing my behavior with the way that I do that? Am I changing my behavior? So the living amends, I think, have confused me 
at times in the past because I think what I've realized is that there is a revelatory process in 10, 11, and 12. And into action tells us, and there are other, we don't have time to go into it today, but there's other parts that make reference to this happens over time. Just keep showing up. The deeper layers come. It's a way to live in 10, 11, and 12. And um, when I finally began to do the big book as it was laid out, I still didn't respect my 10, 11, and 12 as deeply as I do today. 10, 11, and 12 is our way of life. It is our, and step 12, of course, is the inoculation we need. I think Herb says that um, to be able to ensure that we won't go back. When all, when all else fails, work with another compulsive overeater will save the day. So the last reference before I open it up for questions um, is back in that story, My Chance to Live. And on page 316, she says at the bottom, this teenager, sobriety is nothing like I thought it would be. At first, it was one big emotional roller coaster full of sharp highs and deep lows. My emotions were new, untested, and I wasn't entirely certain I wanted to deal with them. I cried when I should have been laughing. I laughed when I should have been crying. Events I thought were the end of the world turned out to be gifts. It was all very confusing. Slowly, things began to even out as I began to take the steps of recovery. My role in the pitiful condition of my life became clear. I love this. It is such a powerful um, representation of how recovery sometimes happens and certainly happened for me. Um, and then at the bottom of 317, if I were to sum up some of the most important elements of moving into the other realms of recovery is what she says, which is if willingness is the key to unlock the gates of hell, it is action that opens these doors so that we may walk freely among the living. I, for so many years, couldn't stop thinking. My sponsor says to me, stop thinking, Cheryl. You're thinking again. If you're thinking too much, you're doing it wrong. Stop thinking because I'm a thinker. I want to think and think and think and think. But where are my hands and where are my feet today? That's going to tell me where I am in my recovery. Someone who's diabetic has a, what is it called, a glucometer or different ways of measuring where their glucose level is and are they about to have a problem. Well, as a compulsive overeater, I need to have those measurements of where is the state of my recovery. And one of them is, is how are my relationships? And one of them is... Um, where are my hands and feet? What am I doing? And then she says, over the course of my sobriety, I've experienced many opportunities to grow and I've had struggles and achievements. Though it all, through it all, I have not had, had a, to take a drink, nor have I been alone. Willingness and action have seen me through it all with the guidance of a loving higher power and the fellowship of the program. There's, I, I can't recommend reading this story enough and continuing on to the end of the chapter because um, it really, it, there's, it's a beautiful um, explanation, explanation of her chance to live and it's my chance to live. I don't want to live today just not eating my compulsive um, 
in, in living in my compulsion, my compulsions to eat, overeat, pick up the foods that are going to hurt me. I don't want to do that one more day of the rest of my life. And I don't want to think badly either. I don't want to suffer in the way that I think. There's so much I want to do today. And I, I'll end with this. I am so excited to learn so much more. Today, the way that I live would have been learning Mandarin Chinese back for that 18-year-old and that third grader and that woman who lost babies and that woman who didn't know how to define her relationship with God. I, it would have been like learning Mandarin Chinese what I imagine that would be, which is just like a whole thing I can't even, I can't even imagine in my mind today. I live that way today. I want to learn so much. There's so much that's coming to me. Now I'm considering a master's program. I'm considering new ways of um, being of service. I'm considering in and outside of this program. I'm, there's so much. I have an excitement about life. I have a clarity of what's my part in my relationships with my husband and my children and with others. I have a clarity because 10, 11, and 12 is an ongoing process that will continue to help reveal what needs to be revealed so that I can live free, not always easily, not always happily, but overall incredibly joyfully and with the freedom of not picking up my food, not picking up my think, and not picking up those actions that destroy my life. I have learned that I need to live within the tension that has always haunted me, that was said to me a long time ago, that it's never too late to change, but it is later than I think. This program teaches me I can always change. There is this ongoing process, but I better get at it because it's later than I think. I can't thank you all enough for listening um, it has been such a joy and gift to be able to share with you and to have um, your listening ears, and it's allowed me to integrate some things that needed to be integrated, and I've learned a lot just from this process, and with that, I pass. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, for your inspiring personal story of transformation and for sharing the continued growth you've experienced due to the work of the 12 steps in a relationship with power. So thank you so much. Today's share ID 14,639. That's 14639. Again, 14,639 for today's presentation. Cheryl's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. Uh, this will be our only invitation for questions, so let's get to it right now. Uh, you can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. Give me your first name, including the first letter of your last name. Um, Deborah M. Okay, this is who I have. I know I missed a couple. Marie Lisa J. B. Thank you. 
LBK. Come on. Okay. Let's stop it there. Marie J. Mary B. G. Michelle, I mean, excuse me, Kathy G, Sandy V, Deborah M, Lisa B, and Toby K. Let's get Ivan started. B. Let's get started with Marie J, please. Did I hear a Marie? Irene B. Star one, Marie J, please. Star one, Marie J. Irene, Hi, can you can hear I me? Yes, I hear Marie J. Please go I'm ahead. Sorry. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, Cheryl, hi, thanks. Thanks so much for your share today. It was inspiring and hopeful, and I really appreciate it. My question is, you talked in the beginning about the wounds of childhood and how they really affect um, a lot of your behavior in, in this process of recovering. And I am wondering, when you're in your present life and something, someone is triggering you, you know, or an interaction with husbands and children and triggers come up and... I wonder how you use the steps in the program to recognize these childhood wounds and, and, and the past or whatever and not the present interaction that is causing your issues. You know, how do you recognize that, oh, this is my work to do and not to attack or blame the other who happens to be there triggering that? Can I be heard? Yes. Okay, great. Marie, thank you so much um, for the question. And I think it's such a um, such an important one. Um, so I think the first phase for me is always step 10. It's always to go to making sure that I'm looking at my part. Always, 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 number one. Because I have to look for, is this, for, no, I have to rule out, to understand uh, what I need to do is, is there selfishness? Is there dishonesty? Is there resentment? Is there fear? What's cropping up? Um, So that process number one of inventory and talking about it with someone else and being clear, is there a part in here that I have, um, uh, is there an action that I've taken that I have to clean up? Sometimes I can be triggered from an emotional, from a childhood wound and an emotional wound from my childhood that's sort of different from a character defect. Um, But if I don't first pause, and you've always talked about this, Marie, you know, the pause, right? And so if I don't first pause and take a look at, is there something that I'm just feeling first of all, or did I do something that I have to clean up? So that's one. And when I get to the point in that process and I realize this is that part of me that isn't that wasn't seen, I'm 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 feeling this way in my, with my with my husband or my children because I've told my children now the, for the for the tenth time to do something and they haven't heard me. Did they really not hear me, or is it that part of me that just needs to be listened to? And then what I'm finding more and more. I literally sometimes will cross my arms, left hand on my on my right shoulder, right hand on my left shoulder, and to physically 
um, have the experience of self-compassion. I've realized that to not act out the old stuff with my family members now, I have to really show myself some exquisite self-care and love. I have to parent myself. And I have to go to God in those moments and allow some healing to happen in those little mini micro moments. Self-compassion and love. First pause, is there something I've done, said that I got to clean up? No, I'm coming from an emotional wound. Oh, well, I don't want to then go take my actions into those relationships and start acting out and pick up those character defects as a way of coping with my wounds. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, um, is the role of expectations. And I think that this has been one of the most beautiful things that has come from more emotional and spiritual sobriety is to realize that when I am expecting my relationships, my, the people in my life to respond in a certain way, I'm trying to remember who said this, but it's like a premeditated resentment. It's a premeditated resentment. It's letting go of my expectations and, it's, and identifying that I am expecting something so that I can then turn that around and it's not a self-flagellating process when those, with this, those childhood wounds. I mean, nothing really should be. But it's, the, it's, it's, it's a love and compassion for myself that I have to go to and an enlargement of my experience with God at that moment to be able to not then move on and act it out. I hope that answered your question. Thank you, Marie J. Mary G., your turn with a question, please. Hi, this is Mary G. Thank you for your service, Cheryl. Thank you for your um, share. And I just wanted to say that that was also my question, so I'll pass. All right, thank you. Kathy G. Thanks, Leah. And hey, Cheryl, thank you so much. So great to hear you. And I'm, I'm so grateful that God brought us together when he did and for your recovery and all it's taught me and continues to teach me. So my question is, um, when you talk about not picking up the think, I wondered if you could give like maybe a specific concrete example as to what that looks like in your life today. Thanks, Kathy. So good to hear your voice. Um, Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, There's so many examples I could give. So, um, So here's an example. So, um, I um, have learned for myself, my sponsor and I talk about this a lot, uh, he'll tell me, the daytime is for action, the nighttime is for thinking. Take actions, 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 actions during the day, right? And at night, when I get into my thinking head, There are still actions I need to take, and those actions are I need to go to bed at a certain time, I've learned, to be able to care for my body and not abuse it. And I need to wake up at a certain time to be able to do my 11th step, my prayer meditation, to be able to take care of my body 
and my heart and my soul in other ways as well. I um, would never go out of the house and not brush my teeth and not, you know, do certain things of getting dressed. And I really shouldn't be going out of the house without taking care of my soul as well. But my head starts thinking, you know, my kids go to bed and I start getting this rush of all the things that haven't gotten done, all of it. This hasn't done and that's not done and my house is an S and the toys are everywhere and I didn't get back to 15 people and I have emails to return and I wanted to progress forward on that project and that project needs my attention and oh my God, what about that person? My, my head starts to think and then I start thinking that I can maneuver and control all different kinds of things um, and then I can just shove it all right into the last few moments before I'm supposed to go to bed. That is an example of my head starting to think. Because I'm trying to find a way around the boundaries that are in my life. For me today, and man, I don't always do it. I'm still working on it. But going to bed at a certain time really is like putting four ounces, you know, of a piece of food on, on the scale. It needs to be. For me. For me. It's not like that for everyone. But for me, I know that it is. But if I start thinking with my four ounces of chicken on a on a scale, well, maybe if I like... You know, I don't know, maybe if I used a measuring cup and I could get maybe a little more in there, or maybe if I like added, if there's seasoning, I have, spi well, don't, don't spices weigh something? I mean, my sp the spices might weigh something, because shouldn't I put in more than four ounces? Um, and on this, it's like, stop it, stop it, Cheryl, stop it. And so when I start picking up a sink, when I'm starting to try to control my life again, that's an example of where I need to remember no, I have a commitment. I have a commitment to go to bed. I have a commitment to wake up at a certain time and to exercise. I need to just quiet all that noise and either pick up the phone, write about it, pray about it. But I best be living according to what I just committed myself to versus what I want to do. I hope that answered your question, Kathy. Thank you so much. That was, that was so good. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks, Kathy. Sandy V. Your turn. Thank you so much, Leah, and thank you so much. I really, really um, appreciate, Cheryl, what you shared. It really goes straight to the heart. And I was just wondering, in working your uh, tenth step, how do you choose people that you are going to uh, give it to? Trial and error over so many years of trying to figure out what works, and I really want to make um, a comment about trial and error, and and, and that that is and has been an element of ten, eleven, and twelve, um, so powerfully for me in the most positive of ways. Um, I have had lots of different ways that I've selected and and picked up the phone to do that. Um, mostly over many the last few years, there's one person. Um, she's kind of like um, a Ted step buddy, I guess. And uh, we don't, not as much anymore now, but we used to pick up the phone regularly every single day um, for, for needed 10 steps and even had a scheduled time to kind of be a catch time for 10 steps that weren't happening in the moment that they happened. So, um, and that really worked for me to really have a go-to 
person. I've used sponsors before um, when I'm desperate and I can't, I'm in a meeting, I can't find anyone. I mean, um, I think it's Harlan who says that, you know, there's always a place to go for privacy and that's called a bathroom stall, right? So sometimes I will go and um, I don't always like to pray in the bathroom. Um, but I, if I have to, my gosh, I will. I'll go and I'll talk to God about it. So I have sort of a, a group of warrior sisters that I pick up the phone and call. And I think that's so important to have that cadre of people around us. Um, and I think it's just developed over time. It's developed through the trial and error process of what works for me, going to my sponsor regularly, going to a single other individual regularly that I schedule calls with, and, you know, having that cadre of sort of warrior sisters um, and, uh, and men too that I, that I've called. Um, but it's, it's just, it's trial and error. And, um, I think now it's, it's sort of the committee of, uh, it's my committee. It's my warrior sisters, uh, around me that I will pick up the phone and mostly call and or my sponsor. Thank you, Kath. Um, Sandy V for the question. Deborah M, star one to unmute. Hi. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for your for your insight over all these years. I have a question that you had spoken about giving of yourself more, being more generous with yourself to other people. And I'm realizing I'm just kind of moving into a profession where I am called to give more of my thoughts, more of my advice, more of myself. The question is, how can you apply that one section that you've identified using the 12 steps beyond sponsorship? Because I am sponsoring and it's a beautiful thing. But could you maybe, maybe well, could you just address that? or? Sure. Hi, Deborah M. Good to hear Hi. your voice. Um, so the first thing I guess I want to say is that being of service beyond program does not take the place of what it tells us to do in the big book related to uh, being of service to other compulsive overeaters. It is not the same. And I um, had to learn the hard way myself as someone who has given over the years lots and lots to my community and thinking I was being of service. And I did have a sponsor say to me once, it's just not the same. This book specifically tells us we have to work with other compulsive overeaters. If I want to, I have to give that away to them. I have to be teaching the big book. I have to be working with it. Um, so that's just a first, a baseline of a, a distinction I wanted to make. With respect to what the service that I do beyond, I've learned from some teachers that I have to be really careful to be able to distinguish, first of all, between my will, my ego, and my invitation to do service beyond in other realms. And I think that the process of 10 and 11 in particular helped to be that place to be able to discern, and discern I think is the key word. It's discernment of, God, is this your will for me? Or is this my will for me for some reason? Am I back in my childhood wound of needing to be seen or heard and therefore I'm going to do it because of that because it's a place where I can be affirmed 
or it's a place where I can be seen, or am I doing it because it's God's work for me? And all of those references to the process unfolding over time, you know, we, we, I am not always where I want to be today. Today, I may not have full clarity. So what do I do? I make the best decision I can. It says, um, sit on 88. It says, no, it's not on 88. It says on 87, um, being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it's not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. And I, and the in, inspired, I can also understand is as clarity, like inspired for what, right? And we're not going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, there it is again, it takes time, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to lie upon it. So I have found very powerfully over the last, specifically the last year of my recovery, and since I've started working with the sponsor that I've been with since September, that I can come to rely more and more on my instinct. Why? Because it's becoming a bigger working part of my mind. So what do we do? We make the best decision in the moment, talk about it with others, go to God, use the 11th step, enlarge my life so that God can talk to me and I can hear, and then make the best decision. You know, we have the 10, 11, and 12 that will catch it if we don't, right? And, and what I have to say to myself, Cheryl, it's not perfect. Don't stay frozen and don't do anything. Don't stay frozen. Take the next straight action based on the best decision you can make. Live in 10, 11, and 12 while you're doing it. Be in touch with others. And um, it'll come. The clarity will come. I hope that, uh, hope that helps. Thank you, Deborah M. Lisa B., your turn. Hi, this is Lisa B., compulsive overeater from Michigan. Thank you, Cheryl, for your share. I can relate a little bit, to, especially to the emotional wound part. Um, my question is, and it's fairly unrelated, I think, to your share, but um, I'm looking to identify in. I was a high-bottom eater, for lack of a better description, and I'm having a difficult time trying to relate to some folks that share um, that have gone further down the scale than I, and I I don't want to go there, so I'm trying to get some identification. If you could share your experience, strength, and hope on that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. So just just so I want to be, uh, I want to make sure I understand your question. So it's, it's, you said that you were, you want to be able to relate to the lower bottoms as a way to be able to identify in and, and sometimes that that's a struggle and kind of, you, you want me to kind of relate to that. Is that right? Not exactly. High bottom, actually. That, that, that you have had a high bottom. Right. Okay. Okay. So, um, the first thing I, I would just recommend is to, is to read Bill's story again, really slowly and really carefully, because this is the place 
to, um, to try to identify in what could happen. Bill, the first, I think it's the first eight pages of Bill's story talk about the progression of his disease. And there were times where, I mean, he, he was doing really well, right? Uh, for the next, on page three, for the next few years, fortune through money and applause my way, I had arrived. He was drinking, but he had fortune and fame. There were things that were going well. His bottom wasn't the lowest bottom that he could have gone to. And yet, if you continue on, the incredible shift in the, the, the destruction that happened in his life as he continued on and allowed the disease to progress, I have to be able to identify in either to think about that my disease has progressed in the, in the way personal to me um, to get to my own bottom, or it says in a big book that alcoholics who have not yet lost their house and still have cars in the garage and all of that can, don't have to hit their worst possible bottom if, they can see how bad it could get. So the thing for me to do, if I ever think, and I, I think I shared in my story that there were years I didn't think I was, as, I was as bad as some of you guys. Years, and it kept me so sick. It kept me so sick. I may not have progressed in the, to the worst possible place that I could go to in the weight that I gained. God, I know today that I could have gained far more and today I would gain far more than 50 pounds that I did if I don't worry. I am terrified to think of where I could go if I picked up food today. It makes me want to cry this moment. But I didn't, I'm not someone who gained 100 pounds or 200 pounds. I didn't do that. But I know that this disease could progress to the point that I would. And my disease, I've watched it progress in my thinking as I, uh, until I finally began to treat my, my, that aspect of my disease. I have to be a treated compulsive overeater today in every realm of the way that my disease manifests itself. So I have to scare myself. I have to listen in to how bad it's gotten for others. And I have to imagine, my God, that could happen to me. That will happen to me. Maybe it could be worse. There's some imagination that goes on. And it's a gift, right? Because we can still, quote, unquote, have the, the two cars in the garage at a higher bottom. But understand the depth of the problem to such an extent that we can predict or imagine or at least believe what people are saying to us that it can get so much worse. And I need to be scared. Me, Cheryl, I need to be scared. Because if I don't, if I'm not scared, I, I, I just, I'm just not going to do what I need to do to treat myself. I have to treat my disease and take the action. So with that, I'll pass on that. Thank you, Lisa B., for your question. Our final question for this morning comes from Toby K. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, hi. Uh, this is Toby K., compulsive overeater. Uh, so my question, first of all, Cheryl, that was magnificent. 
anyway, uh, and I related a lot. Uh, also, so I'm starting um, the steps again, but I've been through the steps before. So uh, I'm not a newbie, so to speak. So I don't know if I should be doing, as I start, let's say, Bill's story, should I still be doing steps 10, 11, and 12 because I know things are, like, bothering me? Or should I just concentrate on the beginning? Thank you. Do you have a sponsor Just who's guiding you? Yes. Okay. Um, so I can just share my own experience. Um, that I, I have gone back at different times. I just went back when I started working with my current sponsor and started the steps and did them much more rapidly, um, uh, although not as rapidly as uh, my sponsor probably would have liked, uh, but much more rapidly for me than I ever had done the steps in the past. And I um, wanted uh, – w- w- if I'm go if I go back and do the steps, um, at the time when I started, it was because I felt like there were a few cracks in my foundation, and so giving myself the gift of being able to go back and begin that process again, um, yeah, I'm, I'm changing on the fly here. I think is it Toby? I think it I think it depends on sort of where you're at in your recovery. I think if you are um, going back to kind of quickly work through the steps sort of at a different layer um, and that you are a recovered person, as a recovered person, I would continue to do steps 10, 11, and 12. If I think that there is something in the, the foundation of my recovery that is off and I'm really not a recovered person, I would go back and give myself the gift of sort of starting from the beginning, which means that I'm doing them in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And then, so I don't go to step 10 when I'm starting out at the beginning. What I do is I use the fellowship. I make phone calls. If something comes up that I'm disturbed with, I mean, there's a 10th there's a step effect that happens by picking up the phone and talking about what's going on and being in the middle of the herd. Um, but if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm redoing the steps because I'm not recovered, I would do them in order as they're laid out, and I, w- I would do them um, rapidly and quickly and, and, and without compromising, you know, doing them squarely. You got to do them landing with two feet on each step, so to speak. You don't want to be out of breath. Um, I think that was probably the last question, and the one last thing I wanted to say is, uh, there's a the you know that Robert Frost poem of uh, the road not taken, and he talks about the road less traveled is the one right. That's the one I want to take. Well, for me, not in this program. I want to take the road traveled. I will. I don't want to think and recreate anything. I can do that in other parts of my life, and as my sponsor tells me, you go 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 think in that other part of your life. You can do that. But I want to take the road traveled when it comes to this 12-step program because it is proven. It is magnificent and it will work. What, what, what is most needed is willingness and action. Willingness and action.
Well, thank you very much, Cheryl. Um, certainly, thank you for those who posed questions this morning. And uh, for those that have additional questions, we'll be getting Cheryl's contact information. So I encourage you to call Cheryl. And again, thank you, Cheryl, for your beautiful and inspiring presentation this morning. Thank you for giving so much of yourself to all of us on the line. The share ID for Cheryl's presentation, 14,639. That's 14639. I'm going to close now from page 164 from a chapter entitled Division for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>